Hey, beautiful people, and thank you for listening to the Bang 2-3 podcast. If you find this funny, entertaining, or insightful, feel free to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, or if you want to make my day, go show us some love on our Instagram page, because I love each and every single one of you. Thank you for listening. So you run a, you run a business. Yeah. Yeah. And who is your clientele and what do you do for them? Yeah. So the main clients are entrepreneurs and C-suite executives and managers, uh, typically in London, but we do work with clients all over the globe. And the main struggles they have is drinking and doing coke. Um, and we take them through um, a unique program that integrates one-to-one phone calls, counseling sessions, videos, and worksheets and allows them to go for an eight-week journey to get their drinking and drug use under control and sort out their lives. Okay, so let, let's go through a hypothetical right now. I am the executive. I am the freaking CEO of the Bang 2-3 Incorporated, and I just yeah. can't stop fucking doing coke. I love strippers. I love the party scene. What, what does our first session look like? What's your, your initial advice to me? Yeah, so the first part of the journey is really bringing the behavior from the subconscious to the conscious mind. Oftentimes, we've been running these patterns for so long, just drinking, doing coke, getting hookers, just like over and over and over again. It's just automatic. It's just Friday, it's Tuesday, who gives a shit? It's like Wolf of Wall Street, right? Just everywhere in the office. <laughs> you know, it's just fucking crazy at this point. So the behavior is so automatic that it's hard to even see that it's going on. So the first step is to really bring it from the subconscious to the conscious mind. And I do that by getting clients to journal out through the worksheets exactly what's happening in their mind and taking them through it. And once we can start to be aware of it, then we can start to take a step back and look at it and understand what's happening and go from having it happen automatically to then watching it happen. And then you're still fucked up and then going a step back and being like, okay, I know this is about to happen. Let me kind of go around it and change my behavior. And that's the main sort of core first step in the process. Oh, that's brilliant. That's brilliant. So what if what if I bring it from the back of the brain to the front of to the conscious and I'm like, okay, so I'm aware that I'm doing this shit and I'm kind of aware that it's making me feel bad, which is why I'm talking to you. Yeah. But but you know what? It's not worth it to stop. Because guess what? Strippers and cocaine are fucking awesome. So it's just kind of like, okay, it's to the front of my brain, but I say, hey, you know what, Luke? Like, this shit is way too fun to stop. What, what would be your advice? Yeah. I mean, some people, if they're not ready, they're not ready. But a lot of times, it's, it's a balance. So on one side, you have the coke, the hookers, all of the fun stuff. But on the other side, you have the consequences, your performance at work. You may lose your you know, multi-million pound job or your multi-million pound business. Your partner's normally had the stop or else talk with you, and you're about to lose your relationship. You're not being the best parent for your kids. And you're recognizing the shame and the guilt the next day of, you know, cheating on your partner or doing coke or just feeling on a massive come down and not performing. So there's always a balance. And when people start to feel this side of the balance, the negative build up too much, that's when they contact me. So normally by the point they've reached out for help, they are ready and they're like, I don't want to be like this anymore. I don't want to be experiencing all these negative consequences. I'm ready for change. And I want to move my life forward. And with that kind of person who's ready and willing and in a lot of pain in some sense, I can definitely help them transform, taking them through the program. That's the key, right? Okay, so you got it. So by me going see you, right, by me being the CEO of this 
billion dollar company and go and see you, I'm kind of admitting that, yeah, you know what? I'm kind of over this shit, right? This, yeah, this is, so I'm kind of already to that step of, okay, I realized that a change needs to happen, but I don't see how people can step away from fucking cocaine and drugs. Like how, cause it's so amazing. Cause I don't see how, cause, cause right. It's like, I, I, I see it as a scale, right? In the left hand, yeah. I have like blow and hookers. And in the right hand, I have like boring shit, a wife, a job, you know, maybe kids. I don't understand. Do you ever see that light go off where, where some, where the, the scales tip back? And now that, that executive is saying, you know what? Hey, I know drugs are fun, but this life shit is really worth it. How have you ever seen that that switch go off in someone? Yeah, yeah. So I've helped lots of clients go through that journey and I've also been through it myself and had that switch flipped too. And a lot of clients they're on what I would call the pleasure continuum. So like I say it's very pleasurable, very like yeah. a big peak to go and do all of this fun stuff. But then you also have the negative, which is down. So if you put it on a graph, it'll be very, very high when you're doing all the drugs and very, very low when you're getting the bollockins or the work stuff or the partner stuff or the come down the next day. Then you go back up to get all the endorphins and back down again. It's very like high peaks and low troughs, up and down, up and down, up and down. And that's what I call the pleasure continuum. You're just seeking pleasure and you can get pleasure from loads of different things. They're just endorphins in your brain, such as hookers, coke, drinking, all that kind of stuff. But what I take clients on a journey to do is the same thing that I've done is go more to the fulfillment continuum, which is more like a long form wave. So there's no like major highs of doing coke and hookers. Maybe it's like playing golf or seeing your kids or doing something fun or having a birthday party or something like relatively calm. But then when you go down, it's not such a big low and you're just like having a day at work or, you know, looking after the kids when they're being a nightmare or something like that. And it's a bit more calmer and it's a bit more of like a long form wave rather than the big peaks and troughs. And I think that's the sort of shift in focus and somewhat lifestyle that people need to make in order to stop chasing that high um, and going just for that pleasure all the time. I think we could both admit that this is, this is built into a lot of people, right? Addiction is a huge fucking issue, huge issue. And it's, it's going up and to the right, right? It's not, it's not coming down. Yeah. So kind of my takeaway is that humans, at least some humans, are wired to have these high ups and low downs, right? For whatever reason in our past, the past whatever millions of years we've been humans, we've kind of like been wired to crave this shit. Yeah. Why, why yeah. do you think humans are wired to crave this high ups and low downs? Where is this coming from? So I think it's evolutionary in order to survive whether that's through honey, whether that was hundreds of years ago and we used to like honey when we used to come across it, or whether that's sex, obviously sex is very pleasurable. We're wired to um, move towards these pleasurable experiences, but our mind in many ways was designed for a world or that existed hundreds of years ago, right? Our, our brain's very outdated to TikTok and, you know, cocaine and all that and drinking and all that kind of cultural stuff, especially in the UK. And obviously in America, you have a lot of challenges with drugs as well. So culturally, things have changed now, and we're not in that world from all those years ago, but our brain is still wired to seek the pleasure over and over again, and we get trapped in this cycle where our brain just craves those endorphins over and over again, and we don't have any boundaries. And also, in some sense, it soothes us, right? We're in some kind of distress. 
whether that's yeah. conscious or unconscious or emotionally or mental. And then we go and use drugs or drink or some kind of vice and then we feel less distress. So in some ways it works, but it's just a very destructive cycle and there's better ways to feel distress, soothe our emotions and then feel less distress rather than being in the destructive ways, if that makes sense. That does make sense. But it, kind of if what you're saying is right, then I guess some people have different brains because some people can do heroin and wake up tomorrow and be like, oh, yeah, that was fun. I don't I don't care if I never do it again. And some people, even if they just look at not even heroin, if they look at freaking McDonald's French fries, they'll eat yeah. them every day for 10 days. So what what's up with that disconnect? Is maybe some people were just the ancestors were more disciplined or what's up with that? Yeah. Yeah. So what I would say um, about that side of things is some people have like a predisposition to having more of like an addictive personality in a sense and seeking more mm. addictive substances. But where that comes from in my perspective is from the underlying childhood experiences and the trauma that they've been through then makes it harder for them to uh, regulate their emotions and the way they've found to cope with their emotions and not being able to regulate them and numb them out is through drinking or cocaine or some kind of vice like that. Other people have different vices, whether that may be food or work or something else that's not related to kind of drugs and alcohol. But some people just gravitate towards drugs and alcohol. Some people may be kids, right? Some women have a lot of kids and they get a lot of love and fulfillment from their kids, but that can also become unhealthy because they're just having loads and loads of kids um, without any boundaries around it. So it depends on your trauma, but based on the trauma that people experience, a lot of clients I work with gravitate towards soothing their emotions or numbing their emotions, I mean, by doing drink and drugs. So it's just what they've grown up around. Like for me, I grew up around alcohol. I grew up around drugs. So therefore, that's what I primarily gravitated towards as a man. And that became my vice that I couldn't keep the lid on. Um, and that became challenging for me. So is it safe to say that since addiction is increasing, that we can say that this generation's parents were really shitty? because we're full of trauma? <laughs> well, I don't think parents are intentionally, you know, um, causing us trauma. Some parents do, you know, that, and, and that's really shitty in the world. But I think generally parents are just trying to do their best, right? They'll always operate at the best they can do, but sometimes their best isn't the most amazing condition for a child. Now, when a child's needs aren't met, they interpret that in a certain way. Like my mum, her journey was drinking and doing drugs. So therefore, me as a child, I didn't have all my needs met. You know, it wasn't necessarily that she was like the most shitty person in the world. It was just whatever she was going through in her journey meant that she turned to drinking drugs. Now, that still left me with unmet needs that didn't get met and left me with challenges as I was growing up in my younger years and adolescent years, which then resulted in me not being able to regulate my emotions. So I don't think it's that all parents are necessarily shitty. I just think it's a natural process in many ways that um, parents just can't meet all of our needs because they have a life, they have their own trauma, their own stuff going on, and people separate and loads of different things happen in life. They just make it challenging uh, for parents to be kind of quote-unquote perfect parents that produce someone who never has any trauma. Look, I'm not going to let you get off that easy. Listen, my parents were shit. <laughs> my parents were shit. They were all shit. 
this whole generation of parents are terrible. I'm just joking. Uh, I, I I don't know. Yeah. But, so, but what were your parents like, Chris? My oh, Luke, <laughs> Luke, no. What were they like? Oh no, Luke, Luke, you are putting on the therapist hat right now, and you are trying to get into my shit, Luke. You're gonna get into. I had I had I had great parents, man. Compared to everybody else, I really did. Uh, I had fantastic parents. Uh, my, I'll say this though, I, I do have a, a history of addiction or whatever in my family. My mother passed away whenever I was 16 years old and she overdosed on drugs. She was a drug addict my whole life. Uh, but I had great parents. So are, are you kind of getting at, let's just talk about adults. Right? Yeah kind of the cause and effect that I, I hear you outlining is that adults cannot regulate their emotions by themselves. So thus they take a binky, put it in their mouth. And a lot of times that binky is addiction, drugs, alcohol, porn, TikTok, and that binky helps them regulate emotions. And this process of regulating emotions is so difficult and painful that whenever we can't do it ourselves, we search for that binky, aka drugs. Yeah, yeah. And ironically, the thing is, is that it doesn't necessarily help us regulate emotions, it just helps us numb them, which is, I guess is a form of regulation. Um, but it just helps us numb them and, and forget about them. But it normally comes with other emotions that come after. So then you have the shame and the guilt of engaging in this behavior and the impact it has on the people around you which then creates more emotions, which then you don't know how to handle. So then you just go and use again. And that's what creates the cycle of addiction. So what if a guy or girl had a fucking great childhood, right? They don't have a lot of childhood trauma and they just get caught up in it. How, how does that happen? What do you think is the biggest uh, leading cause for that situation? Yeah. So I think a lot of people that I've surveyed and work with when we've run different assessments and surveys with clients, all experiencing different challenges, some of them may be like a loss of someone they love, they love or care about. Some people it may have been cheated in the past or been with someone who drinks and uses drugs like a long-term partner. So there's many different things from all the clients I've worked with that clients go through and they all hit one of very various different uh, impact points in their life. So if someone's had like kind of a perfect childhood um, or a perfect life, sometimes that can be a challenge in itself, Right. If a client, that clients that I've worked with whose parents have been multi-millionaires, for example, and they've never had to do anything in their life, they've always had money, they've always had everything, that is a challenge in itself because it's like, well, I've never had to work for anything. I've never had to go for any pain. I've never had to feel any emotions. Everything has been so shielded for me. I've always just had money and it's never been a problem. So sometimes what you can see as no trauma in like quotation marks or no challenges in life, they've had it easy. Their parent was a billionaire. It doesn't make a difference. How can they have had it hard? Really, that was very, very hard indeed because they did have all these problems. And the challenging thing when you're at that point is you feel like you can't have any problems because you then get in a muddle because you're like, well, my parents are millionaires. How can I have any problems? I shouldn't have any problems. I should be fine. I've got everything, haven't I? And then that's a problem in itself. So when you get into the inception of it, I would categorically argue that there's always some layer of challenges, some layer of lack or some need not being met. Um, no matter which way that kind of works out. So therefore, and I would even go further to say, 
there's that piece of the puzzle, but then there's also the fact that people aren't taught how to regulate their emotions. We're not taught about it in school. We're not taught about it in life, how to regulate them, which is another challenge. So you have the thing causing the emotional dysregulation. Then you have the fact that we're not taught how to regulate them in the first place. And those two things cause a lot of challenges. Luke, you're really scaring me, dude. Uh, because kind of what you're describing, what I'm hearing is that, right? Because I've struggled with addiction. I think most people have. I mean, how can you not with freaking, like, listen, let's say you never touched a drug in your life, right? Fast food is nuts with the bullshit they put in it. Um, kind of what I'm hearing is that, hey, you don't realize it. I'm talking to myself now. Hey, Chris, right? My name's Chris. Uh, you don't realize it, but you have these addictive tendencies in your life because you have some type of hidden trauma in your past and it's really fucking with you. And the key word in that sentence is hidden because I don't wake yeah. up every day wanting to cut my wrist open. Oh my gosh, my childhood was so bad. I wake up every day. I'm in a good mood. I'll go work out. I'm pretty productive at work. Um, I get to talk to really cool people like you. Uh, my wife is happy. I have dogs. So I'm pretty happy. Like I wake up every day. I'm, I'm, I'm in a damn good mood uh, most days. But what you're saying is, yeah, you're in a great mood, but there's some shit under the surface. And this shit could be controlling you in ways that you don't even realize. So this is like, this is fucking scary that myself and others may just have like hidden stuff that is fucking with us every day. Yeah. Yeah, we definitely do have hidden things, and that's called the subconscious, right? All of us have a brain, and we can only control about 20% of our brain. So we have the conscious and the subconscious. So loads of things go into that sub subconscious throughout our lives and make decisions, right? That's where we get information from. So all of us do have challenges um, that affect us, some more than others, and it's not a path for everyone, right? I'm not saying everyone has to go on that path and learn those lessons. Some people... You know, not this lifetime. That's not their journey. They don't want to opt into that experience. That's fine. You know, my mum, she had her own challenges and she didn't get clean or embark on that journey and she passed away. That's fine. Her death was not an example. It was the lesson. And that was, was in my mind, her, her path in life. But at the same time, for the people that do Say that again, please. That was her what? Her, that was her purpose in life in some ways was perhaps not to be an example, but to be a lesson of what not to do, Right. And that's certainly what I've taken from it. It was, I understood from her, you know, by drinking and using drugs and she passed away when I was 10, um, that I didn't want to go down that journey. I didn't want to go down that path. And I got to a point where I was heading towards death, drinking and drugs. And I was like, I don't want to, I don't want to die like her. So she really gave me an example of what not to do, but she didn't necessarily embark on the journey of discovering all the subconscious and having years of therapy like I have. And I'm not saying everyone has to go and do that, but I am suggesting that a lot of challenges in people's lives, if they look a bit further under the surface, that would help them decode that kind of mystery behind some of those problems so it can actually free them to get to the next level in where they want to go and bring all of that stuff from the shadows so they can actually start to change it. And that's what I mean by going from the subconscious to the conscious mind is bringing it into awareness so we can start to change that behavior. What would your mom tell you today if she could see you? Yeah, I think she'd say she was proud of me. I mean, that's what people say to me. People say, mum, you know, mum will be so proud. The fact that, you know, I've got over my own addiction and I now run a company and help hundreds and hundreds of people, you know, get their drink and drug use under control. I think she'd be, she'd be really proud of me. Um, 
and should be kind of happy um, in terms of what I've become. Where would she be in her addiction? Would she be sober or clean? Who knows? Um, and I guess that's that's what I feel like she'd say. She'd say, Luke, I'm proud of you. Did you ever try to confront her before she passed about her using? Um, a lot of people did around them, but um, I personally didn't. I did have some experiences with her when she was drinking. But I was sort of like eight, nine, ten, and then she died when I was ten. So I wasn't really old enough to really understand necessarily what alcohol was or what was really going on. I just knew that she got drunk sometimes and I carried her home drunk sometimes, but I didn't really understand roughly what was going on. Um, but a lot of my family members did and my grandparents uh, were very rich and they chucked her in rehab and she was in some ways that person that did have a lot of things in life. Um, and that was also enabled her to use more, you know, like when she used to crash a car, for example, uh, my granddad would just buy a new one, right? There wouldn't be consequence of her actions. So she'd be like, it doesn't matter. I'm just going to, you know, there's no, with a lot of affluent people, there's no rock bottom because there's just infinite money in some ways. There's no rock bottom. There's no wake up call. It's like, I'll just buy you another car and another car. You can just go to another rehab and another rehab and another rehab. So it becomes challenging. So I didn't personally have those conversations with her, but people in my family um, definitely did. And my brothers who are four and five years older, definitely tried their best to, to do what they could. Lou, I think you may have just said something to me that has changed probably the most impactful thing I've heard in the last couple of months, which is that your mom dying was a lesson, right? Not like she wasn't an example because just like you, my mom died whenever I was 16, she overdosed on drugs. Um, and she was an addict my whole life. And I've always looked at her death as kind of like not a lesson, but the path, the blueprint, like this is probably where I'm going to go. Right. I'm probably going to do the same shit she did because the every single day I live is one more percent. I realize that I am just like fucking her, which is bad. <laughs> she was a crazy motherfucker. She was crazy as shit. And so it's like, damn, I am just like her in every way. My sense of humor is like her. My thought process is like her. Like everything is like her. And my dad is like a stable ass dude. Like he's stable as shit. But I, I took nothing from him. Um, and so to hear you say that, damn, that was her lesson. I, I just, I never thought about my mom's death as a lesson, as just kind of like, well, maybe a lesson, but I've always thought of it as, hey, Chris, this is how your life will end. And just to hear you say that has really helped me. So thank you. You're, you're welcome. You're welcome. And, you know, I don't want your, your life to end like that. And, and neither do you, right? The goal in many ways for, for me was to break that generational trauma. I don't want to pass down that trauma through generations and be experiencing the same thing. And I had to go through that experience. I went through my own journey of drinking and, and using drugs um, and then realized that, you know, I didn't want to end up that way. And I was like, fuck, something's got to change. Something's got to change. Um, but for you, you, you mentioned you've had your own struggles with um, drugs and stuff like that in the past. Where are you at with that now? How are you in the here and now? Uh, yeah, so I, I don't know, dude. Listen, <laughs> I, I don't know. I don't. I don't do crazy shit, right? I just, I drink yeah. like, um, and, and I, and I smoke weed. That's about it. Um, 
but it is hard for me to stop um, really anything, really anything. So I'm too scared to try harder drugs, right? To try maybe like um, meth or heroin or anything like that, because I know kind of my family history and stuff like that. So I'll just smoke weed, but, and drink, but it's just hard for me to stop. So for example, just this past weekend, smoke weed on Saturday. I was like, damn, this is great. Woke up. I did it again on Sunday, pretty much all day. Damn, this is fucking great. Did it again on Monday. Holy fuck. Tuesday, and this is this week, Tuesday, did it again on Tuesday. And so it's just hard for me to stop. You know, I'm still good to my wife. I don't kick my dogs. I do my job just fine. Everything. But I do find that it just gets a little bit far, a little bit. I just wish I could quit sooner. I just wish I could do it one day and that's it for a month. But it's really hard for me. Yeah, yeah. And you know, the two main questions I'll ask you is like, is it having a massive impact on your life, like detrimentally? And do you actually want to stop, right? Because, you know, you don't have to stop. You don't have to choose to be sober for the rest of your life. And if it's not having a massive impact on your life, then it's not necessarily a problem, right? If your family is happy, if you're happy with it, then it's okay. But, you know, if you're pushing just past that that kind of stop point, that is something to be a bit mindful of. And to recognize, okay, maybe I need a bit more healthy coping mechanisms, some healthy things in my life that aren't so focused around that. And to be a bit more mindful around what's going on. So some of the things I take clients through, and I can take you through a quick model if you like right now. Yeah, let's do it. Yeah. So one of the things you you probably would have heard of is, is meditation. Now, one of the things that I love about meditation is if you sit there and do what I would call a static meditation, when you're sitting there for 10 minutes a day, just typically with your eyes closed and you're just meditating using headphones or some kind of audio and you're recognizing when your mind drifts off and you're bringing your focus back to the attention of an anchor, like your weight on the chair or the sound in your ears, you know, that can be really helpful for you to be able to manage your thinking. So for example, when I'm in a meditation, if my mind thinks, Oh, what am I having for dinner? I'm going to have a chicken sandwich. I'm going to have bacon with a sandwich. Am I going to have chips with a sandwich? And you link all of these different thoughts all the way down the line, right? And suddenly you're like, Tuesday next week, I'm having two chicken sandwiches. It's like, how do we get here? I'm meant to be focusing on the meditation. Let's focus back on the attention, right? That's kind of what happens. And our mind just, you know, drifts off and goes a million miles an hour. So the practice of meditation for me is about bringing the focus of my attention back to the here and now. So when I think, Oh, chicken sandwich. I'm going to have bacon with it. I can recognize, oh my God, I'm thinking, let those thoughts go and bring my focus back to the here and now. So I'm breaking the link in the chain and not linking so many thoughts together all the way down the road. Does that make sense? Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So the way that becomes practical through the lens of addiction is when you're sitting there and you're thinking, okay, I've had two joints today. Are you just going on an automatic pattern of going, I'm going to have another joint, another joint, another joint, another yes. joint, and the next time having more joints, more joints, more joints. It's the same as a chicken sandwich. I'm all the way down to Thursday. I'm still smoking joints, just unconsciously. Whereas if you bring your focus to your attention, like you practice in your meditation, and then in that moment you think, actually, I just thought about my second joint. That's a craving. Let me be mindful of that. Let me be aware. A thought does not equal an action or decision. Let me say that one more time. A thought does not equal an action or decision. So just because you thought, Chris, I'm going to have a second joint, doesn't mean you have to go and do it. You can just recognize, okay, I can let this go. I can let this thought go like I have done in my meditation. 
I can break this link. I don't have to link everything together. And I can bring my attention back to the here and now and think about what else can I go and do? What is happening in my life? Can I spend more time with the kids? Can I go for a walk with a dog? Can I go and play golf or do some kind of hobby or activity? And those kind of things would fall into the second category of meditation, which is an active meditation where you're focusing so much on something that the anchor kind of takes over your mind. Like if you're playing golf or if you're about to score a goal in football, you know, you're all you're focusing on is the ball in the net. You're not focusing about work or weed or anything like that. So you can go and do a static meditation to practice and then an active meditation to kind of break those thoughts and go and find something else to do, like a, an activity that you enjoy. Man, that's that's brilliant. Would it would it make sense to maybe every time I crave something that I shouldn't, and it could be a joint or it could be, you know, some nasty fast food to punish myself. Like, let's say, oh, oh, I, I want to smoke a joint. I know, like, like you said, I bring it to the forefront. I realize, hey, this is a craving. This is detrimental to my health and my goals. Right now, I'm going to do 100 push-ups. Does that condition the brain or is that kind of hokey? Yeah, so that can help you to interrupt the pattern. Um, but it's best to create a reward that's somewhat better than less impulsive, but better overall than the drug. So you want to kind of take a step up, not a step down into doing something punishing, take a step up. So for me, for example, if I'm sitting there and I'm, you know, had a craving, just as an example, I don't really have cravings anymore, but so I had a craving um, and I'm like, yep, yeah, I really want to go and drink and do loads of drugs. I'm like, okay, I recognize that thought. What else can I go and do that I value more than that? If I play the tape forward, going and doing the drink and drugs is just going to lead to more separation of my partner, more challenges, more shame, more guilt. So if I take a step back and think, what can I do instead? You know, I can go for a ride on my bike and get loads of endorphins and be outside. I can go for a walk with my partner. I can go out for a nice meal together to, and focus on the food and not the drink and alcohol. And I can go and do things that bring me more fulfillment rather than the pleasure back to the pleasure to fulfillment continuum right rather than being like i just want more pleasure more pleasure more pleasure yeah. think okay what fulfilling things can i do that are not going to give me all of that pleasure but maybe it's going to fill me up in a different way of more love and connection whether that's connection to your dog or your kids or your partner or a hobby that you really really enjoy something that really connects you back to the world rather than just takes you further out and is just like takes you further into you know high time and being stoned and zoned out rather than further away come back to your your center luke you're fucking good dude you're pretty good i i'm not gonna lie i think you're better i, I went to see this uh, addiction therapist once and he was terrible uh, so you're way better than him and he charged me like 250 bucks every time i seen him so yeah fuck that guy uh do you think do you think that like addiction can come or peak its nasty head depending on your lifestyle. And here's what I mean. For me personally, whenever I am living a very busy life, I am busy all the fucking time, right? Even a little bit stressed out. I don't even think about drugs or alcohol or anything like that. It's just like I'm just going, going, going. And the thought doesn't even come to mind. Whereas if I'm a little bit more bored, maybe a little bit more comfortable, all I want to do is drugs and alcohol. Are, are those linked? Yeah, yeah. So boredom can be a massive, massive trigger for, for drinking and using drugs. Yes. And the reason I'd say that they're linked is because when you're busy and you're going a million miles an hour, you don't really have the time and space in your brain to actually think about things 
So you're just not really focusing on it and the cravings don't come in. But when you're sitting there by yourself, whether that's in a meditation or if I said, okay, Chris, just go and spend the complete day by yourself and don't watch anything or do any social media, just be by yourself. You'd have all your thoughts and all your problems and stuff may come up and percolate. And you may start thinking, oh, I've got that bill to pay. Oh, that my boss may, may call me in for that meeting. Oh, this may happen. You start to worry and things start to ruminate in your brain and go round and round and that starts to build anxiety. And then after a few hours, you're like, fuck, I need a joy, man. This is fucking stressful as shit. <laughs> I couldn't have said it better myself. <laughs> you, you're like playing the role of my brain perfectly. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Life's yeah, followed so, up. Yeah, so let me tell you the solution, right? The solution is is to recognize when you're by yourself how to shift your focus. So by doing a journal and like a brain dump and writing out all of those thoughts and thinking about, okay, what's causing me anxiety? What can I, what is outside my control? So I can't control what's going to happen in that meeting, but I can write a to-do list of 10 things I need to do this week so my performance review at the end of the week is much better. So thinking about what you can control and writing stuff out and doing a bit of a plan and putting those thoughts to bed, as it were, and then doing the meditation, letting those thoughts go, then finding a healthy way to re-engage yourself that's not with the busyness and the stress and running a million miles an hour of work, but with some kind of hobby like I say, whether that's golf or for me, it's BMXing and going out on my bike and that really commands my attention. But some kind of softer hobby I can focus on, generally exercise is good, anything exercise related, that isn't really consuming all my attention. I mean, for you, Chris, what kind of hobbies do you have? What do you do outside all of the busyness? Yeah, that's a good question. So I podcast. Um, I also yeah. write code. I'm, I'm a coder. So that, that's a yeah. great hobby. Um, also, I like to cook. Um, yeah. I like to to barbecue and stuff like that. I like to work out. I like to play basketball, that type of stuff. Yeah, that's awesome. All of those are awesome. Love all of them. So when you're on a podcast talking to me, right, of course, we're thinking about weed and drugs and stuff now because we're talking about it. <laughs> but generally speaking, you're going to be focused on the guest and what's going on. You're not really like thinking about that side of things. And again, with barbecuing or cooking, I love cooking. I love Gordon Ramsay. And I find when I cook, it really commands my attention because I just focus 100% on the food and making it right and eating it. And I get that big dopamine hit at the end if I do a really good good job and make a lovely kind of three-course meal. And I get to focus my attention. It's like an active meditation where I'm engaged in it. So those kind of things really help. Or basketball, when you know doing that jump shot, all you're focusing on, I see if it goes in the hoop, you're not like having a craving in that moment. So reckon, like making space and time for yourself in a healthy way and having those strong hobbies in place when everything gets too busy is really, really important rather than, you know, going to other things that are just like the, the pleasure rather than the fulfillment. Is Gordon Ramsay as popular over there as he is in the States? We fucking love him over here. Yeah. Um, well, in my world, I'm just a massive Gordon Ramsay fan. So in my world, absolutely. I love Gordon Ramsay. I've done his masterclasses and watched like all of his shows. Um, so yeah, he is quite big in the UK. Um, and he's just, yeah, like a, like an awesome celebrity chef. He's fucking awesome, man. I love whenever, he, <laughs> I love whenever they bring the dishes up to him and he smashes it with his hand. He's like, it's raw. And he's and like the fish goes everywhere and, <laughs> and people, nobody gives a shit. Everybody's like, damn, fuck. Yeah. Okay. It is raw. And this guy is just on a tirade. No one gives a shit. This guy says whatever the fuck he wants, man. Love Gordon Ramsay. And he looks good. He's like 60. Yeah. He looks fantastic. 
yeah, he's really, really good. He's really, really good. And he's had addiction challenges in his own family. Um, like that, what? That he, um, I'm 99% sure his brother struggled with cocaine and doing loads of cocaine. And he's had, oh. and he did like a documentary series about going around to some cocaine plant and looking at it and, and doing a bit of investigation around it. And he did some, some series on it. So he's had those challenges in his life. And if you listen to his masterclass, um, like his, his private sort of teaching um, on this, this company called Masterclass, he does like a, a podcast interview kind of thing. And you get to hear some of the behind the scenes of his struggles of opening restaurants and some of the challenges he's had in his life. And anyone who's successful at that level will have had their own challenges and their own difficulties and will have had to evolve through some of that stuff. He said, you know, he worked as the forefront uh, as a chef for many, many years. And then eventually his wife turned around and was like, Gordon, you've got to stop, you know, or, or we're over. You need to put down the baton and you need to start training other people. And he had to shift from being, you know, a Michelin star chef to now training Michelin star chefs and shift and give up his whole empire in many ways and shift it all to then nurturing people and training people and not being at the restaurant so much and having people under him. So anyone at that level, no matter how successful they are, had to grow, had to evolve, had to improve their mental health and focus on things or it would have just cost them too much. So anywhere you look, you'll see those kind of really important shifts happening in people's lives if they're at that level of, of society. Yeah, I heard someone say one time that you will never out achieve your lifestyle or something like that. Essentially, I think the point was that you're not going to be a Gordon Ramsay level success if your life is a fucking mess. Uh, meaning that, hey, you're strung out every night, you're beating your wife, you're a lazy piece of shit. And it's always stuck with me because I don't know if it's true. It sounds good. It's a really cool thing to tell people, especially if they're struggling. Do you think that's true? So you've worked with CEOs and stuff like that. Have you worked with CEOs and, and top level people who are super achievers, but their whole life is a wreck? Um, yeah, that's normally the point they come to help, come for help, you know, come to me. Is, is that life is really good. And a lot of people you hear say, I'm really high functioning. I'm doing really well, but I just can't stop drinking and using drugs. There's just this kind of thing in my life that I can't stop doing. But my marriage may be good. My work may be good. I may be achieving loads. I may be, you know, the CEO of this massive bank and everything's kind of quote unquote going well. But I just can't stop using drugs and drinking. And that can be a very, very big theme that I see a lot of the time. And normally it's something big that's happened that's kind of tipped them over the edge from sort of functioning and staying, keeping the lid on and keeping everything under control. Then something happened in the past few months that tipped people over. A lot of people with lockdown. Um, lockdown in the UK was really, really big. And a lot of people started drinking at home more, started doing drugs at home more. And then they started doing drugs, you know, when they're working because they've just been at home for a few months, they've desensitized to it. So then they're doing coke at lunchtime or having a drink at lunch in the sun. Then they're drinking through work, which is a barrier that many people never actually align. People didn't cross. And they're suddenly like, fuck, this just crept in. I'm working from home. Now I'm drinking at work. This never really happened in my life. What's going on here? So, but that's something that happened gradually that people just slowly stepped over. So normally these big challenges can echo in people's lives. And there's normally some kind of causal event that happens, whether that's lockdown or being the CEO or some kind of higher pressure. What's your favorite drug that you've ever done? What's the best one? Yeah. 
uh, I'm going to add like a combination. So my best combination of drugs Let's would do be um, doing MDMA and magic mushrooms. Um, doing both of those MDMA and magic mushrooms together is technically called hippie flipping. Um, that would be my favorite combination that I've done in the past um, that I kind of enjoyed from a pleasure point of view the most. Holy shit. I could only imagine. I bet you were fucking like a racehorse <laughs> for nine hours. What did that What did that feel like? What were your emotions after you took that? Yeah, so at the time, I was on top of a stage in a nightclub, very stereotypical. I felt all of the endorphins from the MDMA, but I also had like the trippiness from, from the mushrooms as well um, and the like hallucination. So I was like on top of the stage and all of the little people in the crowd, as far as I could see, all their heads turned into little mushrooms and I was just looking out of the crowd really happy and these little mushrooms were just floating around in front of me, bobbing up and down and I was just <laughs> loving life at that time. That sounds fucking great, dude. That sounds... <laughs> oh, man. That sounds like the best experience of your life. Oh, my gosh. I need to do this. I need to do this. So... <laughs> So whenever you so you're talking about it, you don't you don't want to say, damn, let's hurry up and finish this podcast so that I can go do this shit right now. Yeah, I think for me at this point in my life, um, I, I've put that chapter behind me and I don't live in that there now. Yes, I can recognize it and recognize it was really, really fun. But I guess over time I've learned that for me, like one's too many and a thousand is never enough. Once I start something like that, mm. I'm very like have that addictive personality and I'll be like you know, every single day I just creep up in my life and it become uncontrollable and just like erode all my life. So it's like, why would I invite something that's going to slowly corrode all of my life until I die into my life? Well, I just have that hard boundary where I just don't do anything like that anymore and I kind of keep it on the outside. But, you know, I'm not going to shit on the memories that I've had doing drugs or say drugs are like the worst thing ever. I've done fucking loads of drugs. Of course they're good. That's why people <laughs> fucking do them. All I'm presenting is just... I'm just saying, is not the best way, right? When you weigh up the pros and cons, it just doesn't make sense and there's a better way that I offer clients. Yeah, I, I think it's important you say that shit because, listen, if if I was sitting down with like a drug counselor or a therapist and he was like, yeah, I've never done a drug in my life, I'd say, what the fuck? Like, how can you even talk to me? Because <laughs> drugs are excellent and nothing compares to them. Like, you know, you can't. Yeah. Listen, if, you know, whittling a fucking bowl out of wood was as good as cocaine, no one would be doing cocaine. <laughs> yeah, no, we just have a world full of bowls of wood everywhere. <laughs> it would be like the the governments would like have to pass a law. No more fucking whittling bowls, okay, guys? Can we whittle some damn forks to go with the bowls? What the fuck? Our whole society is based on wooden bowls whittled by these people. And, and everybody be sitting there whittling their bowl. Nope. I don't care what you say. This feels <laughs> fucking great. I don't care what you say, President. <laughs> that is awesome. Yeah, man. Tr drugs are fucking yeah. great. They are and so fun. One, yeah, and one thing you said that was really important, right, is that you know, you'd want to work with someone who's been through it themselves. And that's what a lot of clients say to me, is I don't just want a counsellor who's reading from a textbook who's like, yep, yeah, this is the system and the step-by-step -step way that we solve addiction from university. They want someone who's like, you know, been there at three in the morning doing lines of coke. They want that person who knows what it's like because only once you've been through it, do you really know what it's like? And the, the best way I can 
really describe a craving is like if you hold your breath and you hold your breath so long that all you want to do is breathe and you just want to get that next breath of oxygen, that's what it's like when you're craving drink and drugs. It doesn't necessarily make any logical sense, but you're just craving it so much like that's all the next thing you ever need in life and your whole vision just narrows in and you're just like, but that's all I need in life. I can't see anything else. can't see the impact, the destruction of my family. I'm not doing any of that consciously. All I want is that next hit. And that's just where your laser focus is. And that can be really kind of a, a hard cycle to kind of break out of. Yeah, it's extremely hard. And I think that's a great analogy too, especially for people who are not addicts, because that really is what it's like. And that's, that's uh, by the way, that's what it's like to want to have sex with everything when you're 15 years old. <laughs> when you're 15, <laughs> you see that pretty girl and it's like, holy fuck, like I will give up the next 10 minutes of breath just for five minutes with this beautiful girl. It's fucking crazy. Uh, so why don't, why don't we just let addicts die out? Why don't we just let them go extinct? Because I can't think of a more destructive personality trait than being an addict. I mean, it's fucking terrible. So why not just say, Hey, listen, addicts, you know, you were born with the plague. You got to go. I'm sorry. We're not going to help you. You have to die out and the human race will be better for it. Yeah. I mean, from my from my point of view, I feel like it's unnecessary, right? I, I'm living proof that I did all those drugs and now I don't do any drugs. I've been sober like over six years now. Um, this is my seventh year. So, you know, I'm living proof that that doesn't have to happen. And I guess with my mum as well, you know, I don't want people to die of addiction. I don't want people to die of that. They can die of something else if they want. That's fine. Everyone's going to die at some point. But I don't want them to die of that. I want them to have some fulfillment and amazing life in between. So I think the reason I'm not like, yep, yeah, all addicts, you know, you can just go and die, you're, you're diseased, you're all zombies, <laughs> is because I believe that it's possible to change. I have that belief deeply ingrained in me, in me from my own journey and also working with hundreds of clients that have helped change their lives. And they've literally written reviews um, saying that, you know, Luke, you've changed my life and told me personally, uh, which is very humbling to hear from clients, you know, you changed my life and you helped me get off drugs and helped me get off drinking and improve my relationship and all those things. So yes, the success rate isn't amazing, but at the same time for those people that do make it through, that's the, the reward on the other side is truly amazing and freeing. So I don't think necessarily anyone's beyond hope. And I think, you know, I'm going to, it is my life's mission every single day. I wake up and see clients to help them get them across that goal line. Um, and that's, that's what I do every single day. What do you think it would be like to be addicted to some type of substance such as drugs or alcohol 2,000 years ago? What do you think that would be like? Yeah, I mean, 2,000 years ago, um, it's like Jesus I mean, what comes walking. to Jesus was walking. Yeah, I think you'd just be on the street, right? You'd just be on the street. Um, you'd be just drinking wine, most likely. You'd just be drinking wine and having sex. Um, and... You'd just be laying there like a bum on the street, just drinking and drinking and drinking. You wouldn't be working. You wouldn't have earned a skill. And you'd just be there in the cycle. And then maybe you'd probably just die on the side of the street and they might leave you there. Depends on where you are in the world. But maybe you did find someone um, that was a guide for you or helped you, whether that was Jesus or some other kind of, you know, or Socrates or anyone, uh, some philosopher, some wise counsel that you managed to meet or even just a mentor that was able to help you out of it. So hopefully 2,000 years ago, well, there definitely was mentors and people around helping other people and guiding them. 
I think what's beautiful about now is we have podcasts right now. Yeah. I can reach hundreds of thousands of people a year and give them this message. Whereas before I couldn't have spoken to hundred thousand people, especially without transport, right? 2000 years ago, there's no transport. Um, you know, luckily, you know, you can really get your hands on a horse. That's probably for rich people. So you can just not really do much. So really delivering a message in the here and now is really amazing. But 200 years ago, yeah, I think they would have just been drinking wine and on the street and hopefully someone would have, would have helped them and shown them the light. Yeah, it's crazy. Cause I, I tend to agree with you that you would just kind of be on the streets, you know, depressed. And I'm guessing that you would look a lot like what Skid Row looks like today in Los Angeles or a lot of these big homeless encampments. So while maybe 2000 years have passed for a lot of people who are addicts, their circumstances still look the same, uh, which is really yeah. sad, which is just on the street, probably doing anything for a couple of dollars just so that they could get their next hit or fix. And that's man, that fucking sucks. Uh, do you have any ideas as to what can really change it? And by it, I mean the addiction trend. So every addiction trend now, I think in every major country is going up and to the right, right? More people are addicted. It's impacting more and more people. Do you ever see this turning around? And if so, how does this happen? Yeah. So I think one of the important things um, is being able to get people into support. So a lot of people who are at like the, the sort of lower levels of addiction, I work with more like senior executives and stuff. But if you go down to the other end of the scale where people haven't stopped using at this level, they've lost everything, and they're now living on the street, that can be really challenging and, and a bigger epidemic. So I think what's important is to have um, charities and rehabs in place and places for those people to go, because oftentimes they end up just using and using and using, and then they get um, go into like the A&E, what's in the UK, like the, the medical system, and then they get medical help and, and the NHS in the UK gets them back online, gets them sober again, detoxes them and ships them back out. But then they don't have much support, so they just start using again. And then they just come back to hospital and it's just like a yo-yo wasting loads of you know resources and it just goes round and round and round. So having better support for those people to go into sober houses and to you know work with local charities in order to help lift those people up and give them those opportunities. Because there's a bit of a challenging dynamic, especially where I live, that people won't house people who are using drugs or drinking, but at the same time, people won't stop drinking and using drugs until they're housed. So it's like a chicken or the egg. It's like you can't go into a sober house until you're sober, but people who are still drinking and using drugs are like, well, I'm not going to stop drinking and using drugs because I'm just living on the street. So it's like a bit of a difficult cycle. So you need to be able to give people a chance to still go into the sober house while they're sort of drinking and using drugs and then reduce that and give them the opportunity and have like a free strike policy and then allow them to make the change as they go so that they can really build up their life um, from scratch, which is really, really important. Yeah. But even you said like treating addiction is, has a very low success rate. So even if we yeah. had every single addict got treatment, like what, maybe one in 10 would actually be cured or sober. So then are, are we just okay with that? Or something has to break here, right? Because the trend is, is crazy. It's staggering. I mean, something has to break or else we're all going to be in a fucking tent, you know, trying to suck yeah. a dick to smoke some crack. <laughs> yeah. So I think 
the important thing would be, you know, in terms of like the educational system, having better support to mm. teach people when they're in school how to manage their emotions. If you taught people, you know, different, you know, like meditation, journaling, how to manage their emotions, the importance of, of exercise and balancing their mental health. If you taught that in the school system and had like a whole subject on mental health and taught people how to improve their mental health, that would help tons of conditions, whether that's addiction, anxiety, depression, everyone being put on loads of medication. All of that stuff would be less um, impacted if we taught kids in school how to manage their emotions, how to improve their regulation of their emotions. And actually, then they'd go out into the world with all the shit that life's going to throw at them, not even creating the problem in the first place. And that would be one of the, the best ways to, to solve it. Yeah, that, that's a really good answer. Uh, I think the only product, and, and maybe you could bring another one up, the only product that I've seen or that I've witnessed that is a lot less common now that's extremely addictive is cigarettes. So it looks yeah. like there was kind of a successful ad campaign. I, I don't know, a successful campaign to make people aware of the dangers of cigarettes. And now it, they're not as common as they used to be. I wonder if, do you think that that type of approach, maybe if we took the cigarette approach with unhealthy food, do you think that this would work? Yeah, so I think with the cigarette approach, it's kind of like, you know, letting people know of the consequences of being like, you know, in, in the UK, they have the pictures on, on the cigarette packets of like people's lungs and people yeah. dead and all that kind of stuff. Um, and that's not, you know, that, that, that obviously works to some extent, but at the same time, it does make people, if they're addicted to it, they're just going to feel that shame and guilt and then just perhaps keep using. So it's important to go the next step back and educate people before they start, like in school, what is addiction? Why do people get addicted? How not to get addicted to drugs in the first place? Because me, I didn't understand all of these dots. I didn't understand what it meant for my mum to die. I didn't start understand the dangers of me drinking or using drugs or doing cocaine. I was just a kid in my teens having fun, just drinking and just doing what everyone else did. So culturally, it's like so embedded in our lives. And as I grew up through that system and got used to it, it just kind of slowly just got embedded into my life. And the more stress I felt as I was running my first business, the more I drank and the more I used drugs because it just always been there. And I didn't really know any different and I didn't really get educated on any different solutions or problems in school. So therefore, it just kind of continued on for me. I just became the obvious choice, the, the low-hanging fruit that was just there. And I didn't really know any different until I went to therapy and, you know, did a degree and embarked on this mission and learned all these tools over the past seven years. I didn't know any different when I was in school because no one ever taught it to me. Um, I just knew that, you know, I'm a man, don't show my emotions, and if people would say anything, just beat them up. You know, that was that was all I knew. <laughs> or at least try. I wasn't always successful, but, you know, don't take shit. <laughs> Hey, it's okay to get your ass kicked sometimes, dude. Listen, hey, it's yeah. the it's the fact that you were willing to fight, man. Fuck it. Uh, but see, I, I don't know if that would have made a difference. Because, for example, here in the United States, we have this drug program called DARE, D-A-R-E. It stands for something. Yeah. Uh, but I, I went through DARE. We all went through DARE. And they have, like, police officers come in. And they're like, this is what a crack pipe looks like. This will take all your damn teeth out if you smoke out of this damn thing. And marijuana is the devil and all of this i didn't give a shit right whenever you that young i don't give a shit i was like oh okay so that's what a crack pipe looks like so i know if i see one 
you know, this is what I want to smoke or, oh, the joints, the devil, like, you know, kids are rebellious. I wanted to do something because they said, don't do it. I was like, oh, don't smoke weed. I want to smoke a lot of fucking weed. So it's like, damn, it's, we're kind of hopeless here, dude, because kids don't give a shit. Yeah. Yeah. And like I said, they can be very rebellious and yes. they can be like, if you, if, if they get told to do something, go and do the opposite just for fun. You know, I was just for fun. Mean, like then when I was a kid, it's like, you tell me to do something, I'm going to do the opposite just to piss you off. Even if it, even if it's not even a good <laughs> idea, I just do it just for fucking fun. But the important, <laughs> the important thing is, is to, to, if you taught people, not necessarily like the fear of, you know, don't do crack, this is what crack probably looks like. That education is, is important. But at the same time, if you taught them how to manage their emotions better and more of the solutions about regulating emotions, that would be helpful to them. So, to, so rather than saying, don't do drugs, and then they just go and do drugs, they'd be like, well, what, what would it be like if you said, okay, this is how to regulate your emotions, this is how to set boundaries, mm. this is how to be calmer, this is how to communicate better in relationships, this is how to manage stress when you feel stressed at work, these are what all the different emotions are that you may feel this is how to kind of get in touch with them. You know, if they had more education around those kind of things, yes, there would still be some sense of being a shit show. But at the same time, I feel like that would provide more value than some of the other options that are currently out there. Uh, that's beautiful. Yeah, I think that's a great idea. You could even do it with stuff like, um, I think some things kind of teach you to regulate your emotions implicitly, such as organized sports or yeah. like, or just, kind of team building things, being part of a team. Oh, you're on the debate team, the math team, the basketball team. I think these things, in order to be good at football or basketball, part of it is regulating your emotions. So I think getting kids involved in these type of things uh, could really help them in these other areas. Yeah, definitely, definitely. And having lots of classes and activities that, that kids could do, but also adding the context and letting them know that this is actually, you know, what I would personally call is like an active meditation. Like this is the reason behind going to play basketball. When you go and play basketball, do it with some intention, really put it all on the court and forget about all these things and do a journal beforehand and then go and play basketball and really see how you, if you feel the difference and actually like integrating the emotional shifts into it, like I do with clients and kind of reparenting clients a lot of the time and re and getting that teaching them to reparent their own inner children to didn't learn this stuff originally is really important but you know teaching them the context around these things would be really really valuable how to deal with pressure when you're taking the match winning shot right that would be really really helpful and a lot of coaches are really good at stuff like that and do really help their students and do really help them off the court or off the pitch as well as on the court and on the pitch so years ago, probably in like the 60s and 70s, people, people smoked cigarettes like crazy, right? This is, and they had no clue what they were doing, right? They were uneducated on the side effects, the addictive nature, uh, the fact that their lungs are turning black, all of this stuff. And it, it, it was really fucked up. And they did this for years and years and years. And I don't know when education on cigarettes really got out there, maybe the mid 90s. What do you think in 30 years we're going to look back on today where we're like, damn, it, it's kind of the cigarettes of our day and age where we're not going to really know the harms of it for maybe another 20 or 30 years? Yeah, I'd say some of the things in the here and now that I see a lot of is like vaping, ketamine would be a big one. And also things like TikTok, where people are getting more yeah. ADHD and finding it hard to 
uh, have any kind of focus, whether that's in school or anything, because of their phones and social media, or they can't concentrate on anything because of all of these other stimulations. So I'd say there'd be the kind of big three, which would be like social media and phones and TikTok especially, and then vaping and ketamine. If you had kids, would you let them use a phone, a smartphone? Um, yeah, I, I, I think technology is amazing and technology has changed my life. And so has like coding and having, um, you know, access to the internet is really important and understanding AI and all those things. If I had kids, I'd definitely be teaching them, but I definitely have boundaries and I have boundaries around the technology. I teach them that it's a valuable tool, but it's not somewhere that's going to consume your life. And I would also equally take them out to have boundaries and go and explore forests and go and climb a tree and, you know, throw stones and skim rocks and all that fun stuff I did when I was a kid is important things I would integrate into the child's life. And, you know, I'm not going to stand there and say I'll be a perfect parent. I'll fuck stuff up too as well. Sometimes I understand when it's like just give the kid an iPad so he shuts the fuck up. I understand sometimes <laughs> it can be really, really stressful being a parent. I'm not a parent myself, so I can't authentically comment. I can understand that it must be really, really hard sometimes. But sitting here on my high horse, I would say that I would manage the balance and have boundaries <laughs> and do my best. Yo, it doesn't get boring doing the right thing all the time. Um, does it get boring doing the right thing? You know, I you guess. don't just want to say, you know what, fuck it. Tonight, I am getting naked in a strange place and I'm going to wake up somewhere I didn't intend to wake up. Um. Yeah, so I don't do those kind of things anymore, but I do have fun in other ways. I do skydiving is a big one that I really, really enjoy. I'll go and jump out of an aeroplane to have fun and relax. Oh, well, hold up, hold up. You can't just say that. <laughs> Yo, Luke. All right, Luke. Luke, our friendship just changed, dude. My guy. Luke, you just said I jump out of an airplane to have fun and relax? Like, what is yeah. going on? Dude, you need to go back and uh, do mushrooms and MDMA because that's way more safe. What's going on, Luke? We need to talk about this. Why are you jumping out of planes? Yeah, so I think <laughs> skydiving is such an amazing sport and it's one that's really, really fun. I do enjoy some sense of adrenaline sometimes. And one of my favorite skydives um, was when I jumped out of the plane and it was sunset. And I kind of saw the um, sun setting over the earth and I saw the curvature of the earth. And the I was earth just falling flat. towards uh, the earth is flat. Okay. I saw the curvature <laughs> of the joking. earth and, uh, <laughs> and I was falling towards the ground and it was just magic. Like I felt weightless. There was no, that was one of, one of the most profound psychological experiences I've had, even drugs aside, was literally falling towards the earth, looking at the sun setting over the earth and the curvature. It was just completely at peace. And for those few seconds, I was just present in that moment and there was no past or future and I was just there. And then after a few more seconds, I was like, yeah, shit, I've got to pull my parachute now so I don't die. But in that few few moments was absolute bliss and I really enjoy skydiving. And again, that is active meditation, right? When I'm doing a skydive, I'm not thinking about anything else. I'm like, fuck, I've got to pull this parachute, Par pay attention to my altimeter out and where I am falling in the earth and know what's going on and... It's a really, really enjoyable thing for me. I love it. So we're going to go to all the rehabs now. We're going to take all of these fucking drug addicts and say, get in the damn plane, you fuckheads. Just do it. And we're just going to throw them out the plane and just say, fly, just fly. It's, it's the best. It's, it's the only thing better than drugs, guys. You're fucking flying. Do it. You love it. 
Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's important to find those hobbies that you really enjoy, right? Find those hobbies that really engage you. Like for you, you said it's doing barbecue, doing baseball, coding, like those kind of things can be really, really important and really like an active meditation when you're really focusing on that activity. Um, it can be really, really good. So finding other joys in life and the most important thing is making time for them, right? Because when we're really quite, quite busy in our lives, all of those hobbies and fun things that give us fulfillment tend to fall by the wayside and then that's a shame, right? And that's why we go to the quick hit things because like, fuck, I don't have time to go and play baseball all day or basketball all day. I'm going to smoke a fucking joint. And then in the end, you wasted the whole fucking day anyway. So you should have just gone and play basketball. So, you know, we need to make time for those activities and go and have fun. Nice. So the first step to getting better is one, wanting to change, right? So you have to want to change. Two, bring the problems to the front of, yeah. of, of the head to like realize that, hey, don't just subconsciously light up a joint or have a drink. Think about it. And then three, uh, meditate, which helps bringing stuff to the front um, and helps kind of recognize what's going on, recognize the patterns that my brain is just kind of taking, like following these steps. Hey, it's a Friday night. Friday nights, we go drink and have fun. Say no, right? So you're bringing that to the front with passive meditation and then active meditation, which is like, you know, playing a sport, cooking, something like that to where you're so wrapped up in the activity that you can't think about anything else, even if you wanted to. Is, is that, yeah. that's about right? Yeah, perfect, perfect, perfect. And they're like the main core steps, which is you, you summarize them perfectly. And, you know, after that, there's a few more things we work on as clients go through the program in terms of relationships and rebuilding trust and handling social situations and how to get through the next 12 months without relapsing. But the, definitely the first, you know, few steps is exactly what you summarized. And that's really important that people take those steps in order to go on the journey and start to get things under control and start to, you know, reset their brain. What do you do for someone? Like, let's say I come to you, I say, hey, Luke, man, listen, I have smoked crack every day for the past 15 days. I want help so bad. Obviously, I'm at the lowest of the low in my life. I'm in a bad place. What do you do for someone like that? What's your recommendation? Yeah. yeah. So when I've worked with, with clients like that, I used to work in, in a rehab in London. There was a charity and they used to work with clients who just came out of prison straight into the rehab or sometimes they relapse on the street and then come to the rehab. I think one of the most important things for people like that is, you know, their basic needs need to be met. If they're on the street, they need to have some kind of housing somewhere to live, you know, and, and, and start with that side of things. So the clients who used to come to the rehab would then house them, they'd have somewhere to live, and then they'd start to work through and have like a reduction plan to get off the crack and start to cut out of their life. And then they start to work through the underlying trauma and some of the things that caused it, as well as simultaneously rebuilding some of the pieces in their life, starting to get a job and think about what is going on in their life. But what normally holds a lot of people back in those situations is the past. They're like, fuck Luke, you know, I smoked crack for so long, I fucked up my life, I lost my my business, my family, everything, it's all fucked up, I can never come back from this, you know, I might as well, you know, I'm at rock bottom, I can't see a way back. So it's important to learn to 
recontextualize their relationship with time and understand that stuff is in the past, get them to write it all down. And normally I do like unsent letter. So they write it all down in a letter for their past self and they take that letter and then burn it so they can kind of let that past trauma go. And then I get them to create a vision for the future. There's like a 10x vision of where they need to go. So drugs is here and you want to get the person way beyond drugs to a vision. Like if you told me, you know, five years ago, that I was going to, I did write a vision and I've got way past that now. But if you told me I was going to get past there, I probably would have been like, you're, you're full of shit. I'm not going to make it. That seems too unbelievable. But I wrote down the vision and I worked it day after day, week after week. And slowly I got there and I've achieved things way beyond just not drinking and using drugs every day. And I think that's the really important thing is to have that vision to aim for that you're really going to work towards and to start proving to yourself you can achieve those things along the way. What would be your advice to a person who's struggling with addiction, whether that be drugs or food or alcohol right now? Yeah, to reach out, to reach out and, and to seek help. and to really... they're poor? They're poor. They don't have money. Okay, if they're poor, um, I'd recommend... Yeah, going to, to the library and reading some books, reading some books around mental health. Like so many places have libraries or an internet cafe. And a lot of people still maintain some family or friends or some kind of connections in their life or some kind of support service and ask around. If you're even around other addicts around you who you're going to be around, they will know some kind of service that they've been to, some kind of place that they go to that will help you out even if you've got nothing. There's, there's local ones around here I know for sure and that I've worked with. So finding just that first run on the ladder and admitting you need help and just deciding, okay, I'm going to kind of make this change and really moving along the process step by step. It's kind of scary that that's your advice because we're kind of admitting that this addiction thing, hey, if you got this, if you struggle with this thing, bro, just get help. Just do it. Right. If if you came up to me and was like, hey, you know, I'm struggling, I'm struggling with my weight. I'm having trouble keeping weight off. I'd say, oh, cool. Well, you know, eat more salad and go to the gym. Right. Perfectly reasonable advice. Or, hey, man, you know, I, I need to score high on my test in school. Hey, no problem. Go study. Hey, I have problem with addiction. Oh, shit. You need help. <laughs> no, you need help. Like you need to go somewhere because you can't fight this fight. It. Like, I think addiction is one of the only things that falls into that bucket. It's like, hey, you're struggling with this. Just hang up the phone and get help. And that's, uh, I guess, that yeah. attests to how serious it is, man. Yeah, and it can be really serious and life-threatening. And, you know, with a lot of behavior, if it gets to a point where it's really becoming destructive in your life, then you do need to, to seek help and change. A lot of people who come to me have tried it by themselves and have gone a little bit of time without drinking or using. They've tried willpower or to go to a few meetings or something like that. And then it doesn't really get the job done. So then they need to, to, to have some kind of help outside of them. I mean, when you're in it, you can't really think super reasonable and make those amazing decisions because you're just like drinking, using drugs all the time. So you need someone outside of you, a professional who's been through it, who can help you. I mean, the same with weight loss, right? Even if you're overweight and you're finding it really challenging and you, no matter what you've tried to cut down or do this diet or that diet, sometimes having a personal trainer, having that external accountability can really help. And external accountability is an amazing motivator to help us with any behavior change. 
to help us stay on track and to have that support and nurturing and having someone, you know, who's got our back and who's looking over our shoulder and helping us along. So I don't think there's any shame in having someone help you and reaching out for help. I think people don't need to be doing it by themselves. And that's one of the things I wish someone had told me is to get help earlier, right? If you ask any addict that's, that's got clean, the first thing they'd say is get help sooner because we all we always leave it too long. Um, so definitely, I always remember the saying, the best time to plant a tree is 100 years ago and the second best time is right now. Huh. So it's like, okay, if you're going to do it, do it right now because now is the best time. It's the youngest you'll ever be and it doesn't need to get any worse. Now is, is the worst it needs to be. So go and make that change and reach out for help. Damn. Yeah, it's, that's great advice, Luke. Um, yeah, you're, you're, you're really good. Uh, I'll, I'll say that. You're really good. And if somebody is listening to this right now and you're struggling with addiction, of course, you can reach out to Luke. All his info will be in the show notes. But I'll just say this. I care about you. I, I love each and every single one of you. And that shit is hard. Um, you know, you could reach out to me on Instagram or whatever, but you know, I'm just a fucking guy. Luke's an expert. Um, yeah. And, and I mean, one of the things that the audience can do is we do have an online assessment people can take. So a lot of people don't really know if they're kind of struggling with addiction or if it's a big problem or what's really going on or is it okay? And I can just kind of manage by myself. So I created an online assessment for people to take. There's just some simple questions they can answer and it puts them on a continuum of like how much they're drinking, if it's a problem, and it you know tells them some of the things that are underlying in their life, whether it's their relationships or their self care, or is it their subconscious programming that's challenging? You know what is it that's going on that's making this problem a challenge for them? If they have a problem, and that's completely free, so anyone can go and take that, and they they get um, a thirty eight page report that gives them tons of tools and techniques and tips to actually work on the problems that were identified in the assessment. And anyone can go and take that um, at insideaddiction.co.uk forward slash why. And it's completely free to go there and just take it and get all of that advice and help. That's like a good first step. Awesome. I didn't know that. Uh, where where else can people find you? Is it just your website? Yeah, just Inside it- Addiction. You can just Google Inside Addiction or my name, Luke Worsfold. Um, but the main place to go is to, to go and have a look at that assessment at insideaddiction.co.uk forward slash why. And then they can start there and start to, to get a bit of information everything that's going on awesome well Luke, thank you so much for coming on despite all the technical difficulties the time differences all the crazy shit thank you so much you've been a complete trooper and i genuinely appreciate your time perfect thank you so much chris it's absolutely amazing and thank you for your dedication to the audience and being up at 5 a.m and smashing out this podcast together you've been an amazing host thanks very much (laughs) you are the man